In early January of 1979, snow littered the ground of Cantwell, Alaska as nearly 3,000 angry residents assembled at its freshly minted Denali National Monument to protest. Among the thousands of people were many families, hunters, trappers, and guides who demanded their voices be heard. While occupying the new Alaskan monument, they intentionally violated as many park regulations as possible in hopes their message would get through to Washington. They camped, built fires, hunted, set traps, used snow machines, dog sled teams, and more to make their point. The woefully outnumbered National Park Service chose not to arrest any of the thousands of park violators, and after two days, the protest ended peacefully. The gathering was dubbed the Great Denali Trespass. But why were they protesting at Denali? To answer this, we have to go back further in time. It's a story about land, antiquities, and oil. I'm your host, Forrest Kelly, and here are 10 minutes about the Great Denali Trespass. To fully understand the situation in Alaska in 1979, we have to begin today on March 30th, 1867. The United States finalized the purchase of Alaska from the Russians for a sum of $7.2 million, a staggering bargain that equated to costing a mere two cents an acre. The process of purchasing the land was spearheaded by the enthusiastic Secretary of State William Seward. Without his efforts, Alaska might still be owned by Russia today. He began negotiating with Russia four years prior upon learning that they were interested in selling their territory. As plans were finalized and a deal set in place, many Americans criticized Seward and the purchase heavily. They mockingly named Alaska Seward's Folly and Seward's Icebox. It would be decades until Americans discovered the land was abundantly rich in natural resources. Resources that will play heavily in the future of the new territory. By 1958, the Alaska Statehood Act had been ratified in Congress, making the frontier the 49th state in the Union. This act did two significant things. The first was that it allocated 103 million acres of federal land into state possession, allowing them 25 years to select what land they wanted. The second was that it maintained native land claims previously in place, claims set by natives on their historical ancestral lands. This precluded the state from selecting land with those prior native claims present. It sounded straightforward, but over the next decade, the state and natives would butt heads over these lands. Several years later, while these areas were still in dispute, the Bureau of Land Management began to process certain state land selections that natives previously had claims on. In 1966, the Alaskan natives filed an official protest against these state selections with the Department of Interior. As a result, then-Interior Secretary Stuart Udall froze land selections made by the state on those native claims until the two parties could come to a resolve. In 1969, Udall commented on his decision, stating, One of the other things that I took most satisfaction in the last two years was in championing the cause of the Alaskan natives and their desire to have land in Alaska. The land selection on native claims remained frozen for several years while the two sides negotiated with little results. But soon that would all change. Something big was about to happen that not only heightened the urgent need of an agreement, but would alter the course of Alaska forever. During the Alaskan gold rush of the 1890s, very few would have imagined there were other natural resources in Alaska as valuable. 
But in 1968, beneath the frozen tundra of the North Slope, oil is found at Prudhoe Bay. The exploration of oil had been going on at Prudhoe Bay for years with nothing to show. It was a relief then when they finally found oil. But just how much was there? The short answer? A lot. In fact, the oil field at Prudhoe Bay is the largest in North America. To give that context, it is twice the size of the second largest oil field in East Texas. Prudhoe Bay stands as one of the 20 largest oil deposits ever discovered. This newfound wealth was welcome news to the oil companies and many Alaskans who sought to benefit. In order to export oil to the lower 48, it needed to be transported by cargo ship. There was just one small problem. Prudhoe Bay, and the oil beneath it, was on the North Slope, Alaska's northernmost coastline on the ice-filled Arctic Ocean, 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle. Ice remained in the bay year-round, preventing ships from safely getting in or out of the harbor. The only viable solution would be to construct a pipeline diverting the oil to the nearest ice-free bay. This led to the construction of an 800-mile-long pipeline to the ice-free port of Valdez on Alaska's southern coast. But before the line could be built, there was still one issue needing to be resolved. The pipeline would cross over into native land claims. In 1970, Alaskan natives delayed the construction of the pipeline by filing suits against the oil companies and the Department of Interior. As a result, the state and federal government were required to resolve the issue before beginning work on the pipeline. Finally, in December of 1971, the two sides managed to reach an agreement. Richard Nixon signed into law the Alaska Natives Claims Settlements Act, putting to bed a decade-long dispute over public and native land. The terms of the deal stated that the natives would receive 44 million acres of public land and over $900 million as a settlement for their original land claims. While it would be several years before construction of the pipeline would begin, the act opened up a large amount of frontier to be designated by the state and federal governments. But how does this play into the Great Denali Trespass? Bear with me. This is a very important detail of the story. Within the Alaska Natives Claim Settlements Act, there was a provision that permitted the Secretary of Interior to set aside 80 million acres of public land over the next two years for potential incorporation into the national park system. At the time, Nixon's Interior Secretary was Rogers Morton. After two years, Morton sent his proposal before Congress. In total, the Interior Secretary had set aside 83 million acres of land to be conserved in the national park system. The proposal itself drew the ire of many on both sides. In part, Morton sought to appease all parties involved, and as a result, few were satisfied with his proposal. While the proposal was 3 million acres over the 80 million allotted in the ANCSA, some conservationists weren't pleased with it, countering with a proposal of their own that would expand the national park system in Alaska by nearly 120 million acres. Another critique of the proposal was that it allowed for sport hunting within the parks, something that had never been permitted previously. Lastly, many saw the proposal as a land lockup that would block access to wildlife and natural resources essential to the state's economy and the livelihoods of many Alaskans. The proposal would be litigated in Congress for many years with no results. 
Morton would soon be replaced as the fate of Alaska's land hung in limbo. After six years with no resolution, President Jimmy Carter believed Congress had failed in their duty and decided to step in. In December of 1978, President Carter exercised the Antiquities Act to delegate 55 million of Morton's original 80 million acres as national monuments. This drew harsh criticism from many Alaskans who believed that Carter was misusing his authority to lock up vast swaths of land that were essential to Alaskan livelihoods. The state questioned the president's authority to use the Antiquities Act, claiming he abused the act and superseded Congress's rights. The president's actions caused outrage among many Alaskans. Clark Engel, a hunting guide whose primary guiding lands were swallowed up by the new Denali National Monument, said of Carter's orders, quote, At 10.36 in the morning, the peanut farmer signed my life away. Protests broke out across the state. In the streets of Fairbanks, the citizens torched an effigy of the president, and in the town of Eagle, the city council passed this resolution. Quote, we do not intend to obey the directives and regulations of the National Park Service. The City Council of Eagle, Alaska does not advocate violence, but we can be no more responsible for the actions of an individual citizen than we can be for any animal when it's cornered. The policy of the Eagle City Council shall be to offer no aid or assistance to the National Park Service or its employees while your current regulations are in effect. End quote. As acts of civil disobedience littered the state, the largest of these demonstrations was the Great Denali Trespass. As I've mentioned before, in January of 1979, 3,000 protesters descended upon Denali National Monument to protest. Hunters, campers, fishers, trappers, and everyday families crowded the monument to protest Carter's actions. They believed the land was theirs and that the president had overreached on his authority. They thought it was unrealistic that the president or any member of Congress could make an informed decision on the use of their land without fully understanding Alaska, its people, and their way of life. While subsistence hunting was permitted, under the new monument designations, hunting, fishing, camping, mining, oil drilling were all banned. In the opinion of many Alaskans, with one pen, President Carter had snatched 55 million acres of land vital to the economic prosperity of Alaska and the personal livelihoods of many individuals. It was their land, and no one would tell them otherwise. Thus, for two days in the cold and snow, the people occupied Denali. In 1980, after his November defeat at the hands of Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter and Congress worked quickly to assemble a deal that would officially and properly designate federal land in Alaska. On December 2, 1980, as one of his last acts as Commander-in-Chief, President Carter signed into law the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act. It added 104 million acres into the Park Service, designating areas such as Gates of the Arctic, Wrangell St. Elias, and Denali as national parks and preserves. Preserves that would protect land from development, yet also allow for hunting, fishing, and trapping. And while this is not the end of the story, as Alaska's frontier is still a hotly debated topic, I must end here. From Seward's Folly, to the Alaskan native land claims, to the oil fields of Prudhoe Bay, to Rogers Morton's proposal, and through to the Great Denali Trespass, Alaska's frontier has always held a special importance to its people. If you ever have a chance to visit, remember that. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Forrest Kelly, and this has been 10 Minutes About the Great Denali Trespass.